who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. Uh, on our normal Thursday, uh, I'm Chris Moore from the Department of Political Science. I'm Andy Bramson, also from Political Science. And I'm Mitchell Crum, also from Political Science. And this is a two-show week for us, gentlemen. Uh, had a really fun time at our live show in the library on Tuesday. And uh, had about, I don't know, uh, it, it was uh, it was an academic blowout. Uh, academic, if, if you've ever been to an academic conference, if a dozen people show up to your uh, <laughs> to your to your uh, to your panel, then like you just you just won. Um, and we had like seventy seventy five people at the at uh, at the library, so we loved yeah. that. We yeah, had a lot of great questions, and so we're getting back together here on Thursday because we had so many great questions we couldn't get to them all. We just want to cover a few of them in our time here today. So. Um, before we uh, jump into some of those questions, uh, we don't have much else on the agenda today, but we do want to say check in. Um, anything you guys are following on the news right now? Um, well, certainly, I think one of the things to just keep an eye on are these um, the shootings that have happened and the subsequent violence in Charlotte. Um, it's a you know it'll be interesting to see how the candidates handle handle this. On the one hand, it's a local issue, so there isn't a lot that they can do about this, or for that matter, the pres- current president can do about this. Um, but it's still you know, it's one of those issues where it's important to see how they react and how they how they empathize with people and who they who they express empathy with and so forth. Um, so that's going to be interesting. The other story I was mentioning right before we uh, started here is that um, Hillary Clinton sort of wondered aloud to an audience about um, why she's not winning by fifty points right against a guy like <laughs> Donald Trump. Um, and so it's you know interesting to see the a little bit inside her mind like that was a very off the cuff, more honest moment. Um, to to hear what she's thinking, so we'll see how that that plays with the the wider audience. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with Andy. Actually, I think the shootings um, and the subsequent uh, violence are definitely pro- probably the most important thing right now. I think one of the things that was telling, I know a number of people have, have already noted this, is that the candidates immediately adopted contrasting narratives um, mm-hmm. after the shooting took place. So Trump immediately tweeted out. Um, a tweet about <clears throat> the uh, about the protests, right. and Hillary Clinton immediately treat, uh, tweeted out uh, a comment about the shooting, and mm-hmm. just the contrast mm-hmm. of that, I think, in some ways, uh, illustrates the way that these kinds of moments are immediately being politicized, especially um, in this moment of the election. And um, you know, one of the things I guess I'll just sort of one other note is this morning when I was you know re- kind of reading through. Glancing over my Facebook posts, you know, one of the things that inevitably happens, you know, you watch. You read every link that people send uh, to you. Yeah, well. <laughs> You'll be um, amazed at number five. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, but I'm, but I'm scrolling through it. And one of the things that, that, uh, that popped out to me again is we sort of have this recurrent narrative whenever one of these shootings happen is immediately there's sort of this push to, um, you know, to rapidly try to uh, discredit the person who was shot, and one of the mm, things right, that I that I right. noticed is there's already links to saying, oh, you know, the, you know, he had a he had a criminal record and all of these sorts of things, and you know, one of the things that of course we know is that you know uh, police are much more likely to arrest um, African Americans right. even for the same crimes. You know, even though even though oftentimes we even know that the same crimes are committed more often um, by uh, by whites, and so or more likely and even more likely to escalate some more interaction. Right. As well. right. Right. Absolutely. So there's all these sorts of ways, but you know, but it's but we already see these these just 
you know, recurring narratives uh, once again coming up. And right. uh, so as, as I'm watching this, you know, that's one of the things I'm keeping, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm looking at here and thinking, you know, in terms of this election about what, uh, you know what? What are these candidates going to mean for 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 mm. race relations and how we how we think about that? Well, right. it, we've had eight years of, a, of our first African American president, mm-hmm. um, who, in many ways, because of his race, but also because of the way that he's talked about race, mm-hmm. has been able to approach race relations in the United States with an air of moral authority. Um, are we entering into a whoever, whoever and I'm going to hold off Gary Johnson, although the same argument would apply to Johnson as well. Whoever wins uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, are we going to lose that moral authority from the presidency? Because these shootings, police relations are essentially local issues and state issues. Ultimately, uh, mm-hmm. the federal government cannot doesn't play a huge role. Um, other than sort of, you know, landmark pieces of legislation like civil rights legislation or possibly Supreme Court rulings, the president doesn't directly intervene often in the politics of race relations at the local level. So are we essentially, no matter who wins, going to be taking a step back in the in the moral mm-hmm. authority of the presidency? Well, I mean, we may we may well take a step back in terms of the moral authority of the presidency just because of how these two um, candidates are viewed. They're both viewed so negatively, right? So I think that just in in a general sense, I think that's probably true. I guess I'm I'm less convinced that the president has been effective in his moral authority in terms of race relations. So what's interesting is that under his presidency, these issues have come more to the forefront. So whether they've actually increased or they become more of the the narrative, um, it's certainly the case that there have been you know sort of there's been a lot more consciousness about these mm-hmm. these kinds of events, um, and he's felt less than effectual in terms of actually trying to cope with them. I mean, he certainly comes out and makes statements about them, but in terms of actually accomplishing anything, he kind of, in some ways, hasn't looked very strong um, in that regard. That's kind of the point, is because he's not equipped, the presidency isn't equipped to accomplish Right, which which makes it awkward for him. He's not, in fact, going to take all your guns. Right, right, and and because he is an African-American president and he's expected to do better on this, it almost makes him look weak, right, because he can't do it, and you're right, he shouldn't because it's not really his issue, Um, but then he feels obliged to come out and talk about it and to try to take the lead, but then he has nothing he can really do when he does take the lead because, once again, these are local or state issues and they're not really within his his realm of authority. So, um, so in that sense, I mean, it might, you know, you I could imagine a scenario in which you know either Trump or Hillary is actually more um, effective just by because people won't expect as much out of them in that regard, um, <laughs> you know, as they expect out of Obama. So the but, lower, because of the lower expectations, if yeah. they say something or do something meaningful about race relations, right, it will have more, more than, of an impact. Right, maybe. I mean, we're not more of an impact, but it won't make the presidency look as weak um, because because Obama's expected to do something, oh, okay. but when what he does doesn't really accomplish anything, right? So, so he's it's, it's frustrating to people when we have on these issues. Yeah, because each time each time another African American male gets shot by police, right? I mean, the president comes out and says something, mm-hmm. and then it happens again, right? And it, that doesn't make the presidency look very important, right? So, so in that sense, I mean, I, I guess less could be more um, because the president might feel less obliged or less able um, to make comments because they don't have that moral authority, both because, Mm -hmm. A, they're not members of the African-American community, and, B, um, they're Trump and Clinton, and they they simply don't have Obama's standing. Um, I think it's fair to say they're both way less popular um, than the president and have way less support in the country than the president had when he won twice. So in that sense, you know, they – that might be, I guess, one small way in which it it works in their favor. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Maybe they don't have to – do as much and maybe it won't make them look weak on that front (laughs) perhaps on others 
I mean, you know, I and I agree with uh, everything that Andy said. I mean, obviously about, uh, and I think that's a good insight about the um, the fact that the presidency looks weak because mm-hmm. they can't because they can't do anything. And I also wonder, I mean, to some extent, how much how much of this is because you know President Obama is African American, and right. to some degree, you know, just the fact of him speaking about this sort of automatically inflames uh, sort of latent racism mm-hmm. in, a, in mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of folks. So that's, one yeah, of the good yeah. one of the one of the reasons that you know that that uh, that his statements I think often seem to fall on deaf ears is because you know sort of the you know as C.S. Lewis described it's sort of the parrot disease. You know, you sort of say you say that because you are a white person, or you say that because you are a black right. person, and so. Um, you know, and so and so we sort of automatically fall back on those kinds of parroted arguments, um, mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. saying, okay, what is the president actually saying, and it, how can we um, maybe make changes to follow through with uh, with with you know legitimate things that are being discussed. I, I guess that maybe I'm just a little bit more cynical on this or skeptical on this than perhaps perhaps uh, Andy is. Uh, I can't imagine that either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump is going to be more effective at race relations than than Barack Obama has been. Um, there, there will have lower expectations. I agree right. with that part. Right. But uh, their capacity to, to mend fences is... I, 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 well, I mean, we're sort of speculating about how they'll act, but even, I mean, even if we hold, hold aside how we think they're going to act in the presidency, the very nature of who they are as individuals coming into the presidency, I think, limits their... Limits their efficacy in terms of um, in terms of race relations. Yeah, and I don't think they'll be more. I mean, I agree. I don't think they'll be more effective. I'm not trying to say they'll, they'll be more effective. I'm just. I say. I think the the expectations will be so much lower that the focus is likely to be elsewhere. So there's, there was there an expectation yeah, with Obama that he would come in and that he would that this would be very healing. It would be very helpful to finally have an African American president mm-hmm. after our long history of sort of enslaving African Americans and then. Um, and then, of course, you know, almost 100 years of Jim Crow laws right in the South. I mean, this would be a really a healing moment. And it hasn't been, I think, is the it's fair to say. Right? I mean, I don't think race relations are better now than they were eight years ago. Um, there won't be that expectation with Hillary or Donald. Right. Whatever the expectations are going to be for these presidencies, it's not going to be this is going to be an incredibly healing era in race relations. Mm-hmm. And so I think effective only in the sense that they won't be expected to be effective, right, if I can put it that way, um, and therefore won't look as weak. But but not that they'll do a better job as such. Okay. I, just, I, I just don't think that's where the, the spotlight's going to shine in the way that it has um, for this president. Okay. Well, this actually um, leads into one of the questions that we didn't get a chance to ask right. at the, uh, uh, or get a chance to discuss at the library. Um, it comes from one of our students, Josh. Uh, um, and Joshua asks, um, how should Christians consider a candidate's character when deciding where to place their support? Is there a, is there a methodology or a way of, of ranking and prioritizing issues of character with issues of policy and, and, um, uh, and political ideology? It's a good question. I mean, I, I'll, I guess I'll start off, and I'm not sure these thoughts are super well organized, but I'll I'll offer a few a few thoughts about just the way I try to consider this. I mean, I do I do think character matters, and I do I do think we ought to, especially as followers of Christ, um, think about whether a person has character. And I think you know having somebody who has good character in the White House, you know is better than having somebody who's bad character. And it's not, <laughs> it's not the case. I mean, as we'll say as a sort of cynical political scientist, it's not the case that people with bad character cannot lead well. I think they can lead well sometimes. And I think you can look at history and find some people who had very little character and were actually quite effective. Uh, at the same time, all things being equal, I strongly prefer having people of character in the White House. And so I do try to, to think about that. And so some of the questions I, 
I try to ask when I think about candidates is, you know, can they be trusted by the people closest to them? You know, so that that biblical principle, right? If if you want to be trusted with much, you should be trusted with little first and show sure. that yourself faithful there. And so um, so I, I try to think about, so can they be trusted by the people close to them? Um, are they, what, how do they behave when no one's looking, right? When they think that others aren't um, paying attention, right? That's hard to get at with politicians sometimes. Because but, we're always looking. Um, because we're always looking, we're right? But, but sometimes you get insights, right? And sometimes you get insights into what, the way that they, they think. And so I, I try to think about those kind of things. And I mean, I will say this is a tough election because usually in the past one or sometimes both candidates have cleared sort of basic character bars. And I have some pretty serious reservations about both these candidates in terms of character for different reasons. And I want to take back something I just said, which is that, you know, we're always looking in this particular election between these two particular candidates. um, We have two candidates who are more interested in preserving their privacy than we've had in a long time. And um, both of them have been taken to task for that mostly by their opponents and not by their supporters. Um, Donald Trump has has issued a partial release of his health records, but nothing <laughs> resembling what candidates usually right. release when it comes to health records. He has not released his tax returns, which is something that every modern presidential right. candidate has done. Um, Hillary Clinton um, uh, has famously uh, tried to keep emails private um, by mm-hmm. using a private mm-hmm. server in her home um, and uh, by, by sort of uh, being reticent to disclose some of the information right. therein. So both these and, – and, and admittedly, uh, and her own personality has admitted to, to wanting to be a more private, introverted person. And right. you know, there's no reason we can't vote for an introvert for president. But right. uh, this is a question of, 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 of judging character right. when, those, when people do not want to mm-hmm. reveal you know, key information about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean I agree with um, what's just been said. You know, one of the things that I think is important when we think about this is we're not looking for perfection right, in, absolutely. In, in a candidate. You're never going to find, no. you know, the perfect person in terms of character. Oh, just um, wait. They're, they'll be there. They'll be right here in the next election right cycle. There, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Kanye 2020. Kanye? <laughs> Kanye versus uh, uh, the, the Atlantic had a piece. Kanye versus uh, Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty in oh, 2020. It's it's our celebrity, be celebrity election. I mean, that's. I think that's almost a case of like satire, you know, almost becoming. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's, it's it's almost not funny. So anyway, uh, it's like the it, Babylon Bee. It hits too close to the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at any rate, uh, so yeah, we're not going to find the perfect candidate. Um, a lot of times, one of the things that I I I, I want to see in candidates is do they do they have the ability to be introspective and see their mistakes? Right. Um, and I think that's one of the key uh, aspects of yeah. character that you yeah. want to see in a candidate. So um, you know, so if you look at if you look at a candidate and they say, you know, I was wrong about this or that, mm-hmm. um, and so I, you know, I'll just you know, as, as as an example of this, I think one of the reasons um, you know that that uh, Paul Ryan, for example, has, has gotten a lot of support is because he's come out recently and said, I was wrong about the way I thought about poverty and the way I thought about right. um, these sorts of things. And I think that sort of introspection shows something mm-hmm. important about character. You know, even if you've made mistakes or if you um, have thought wrong things in the past or done wrong things, if you're willing to sort of own up to them and say, you know, this is, this is what I've done. And I think, you know, I think, I think in some ways that's almost part of what we see, you know, you know, for example, with, with, uh, you know, with Hillary Clinton, she has come out at various points and said, yes, I made mistakes. 
Um, but in some ways, she also wants to brush them aside. Um, and I'll just this is, you know, obviously a judgment call. But it seems like Donald Trump even more um, has been very unwilling right. to ever admit you know, mistakes, even to the point of saying he doesn't even you know, think he really sins like he doesn't. Yeah. You know, and so and so I think <laughs> he, he, specifically he said, I haven't needed to ask for forgiveness. Yeah, I haven't needed right, to ask for right, forgiveness. Right. And I think, you know, in some ways, you know, especially if you're thinking about character, I mean, that, uh, you know, for, for, you know, just just wanting to look for are you introspective enough to try to see your own faults? That's a real character problem. Sure. And I think that's um, probably the largest um, issue that I mm-hmm. that I see. I mean, and uh, and one of the reasons, yeah, and that's and that's so so. I think on that criteria is one of the main things that I base character judgments on. And if I, think, I were if I were Lester Holt, who was moderating the first debate, I think the question I want to ask both candidates is: What's the biggest mistake you've made in the last eight years, and how have you corrected for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> it'll it'd be very interesting to see if either of them can manage to be honest in that, right? Because <laughs> it just doesn't. I, I agree, Mitchell. It just feels like neither of these candidates are good at ever admitting mistakes, Fault. and and, yeah. and that's um and that's disturbing. That's one of the my my big reservations about them in terms of character. I mean, I, you know, I I've had issues with both of our past two presidents, with a lot of issues where I disagree with them, but. It, there is, it, they are kind of an interesting contrast with these two candidates mm-hmm. in terms of character. I mean, so, you know, you could make some very strong critiques of sort of Bush and Obama's youth in both cases. I mean, Bush had a huge problem with alcohol. Um, Obama, by his own account in his, his autobiographies, had a, a pretty wild youth, right, in a lot sure. of ways. But then you look at them as adults, right? And these become very yeah. stable. And they're people that their, their wives can trust, right? Um, they're people that, you know, they, they show some real consistency. And so, yeah, it takes Bush till he's 40, right, to get there. But, but, you know, and, they, and they show some consistency and ability to, too. Yeah, and an ability to be reflective about you know what they do well and not do well and, and don't do well and and it just it's been hard to see that in either of these candidates, mm-hmm. which I I do find very disturbing. Back to sort of Josh's character question because I agree with Mitchell. I mean, the ability to show some kind of humility about your own your own limitations, which we all have, because mm-hmm. there's no there are no perfect candidates. Um, that's really important, and it just doesn't. I don't feel that from either Hillary Clinton and especially not from Donald Trump. A lack of humility in leaders sort of a um, is almost projects a, a, a fragile narcissistic hubris mm-hmm. um, that I think mm-hmm. we should as voters be cautious of. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, I'm going to combine two more questions into right. one one omnibus question. One is <laughs> omnibus unsigned, question. One is unsigned. One is from David, uh, and they the, the, this is the this is the combined right. paraphrase. Um, are evangelicals wrong footed in their opposition to uh, refugee immigration from Syria and elsewhere? Uh, what would Jesus say in regards to refugees seeking asylum? Should they be admitted to the United States, and what should the U.S. government response be? <laughs> that is an omnibus question. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Um, Mitchell, do you want me to lead off or do you want to start? I'll, I'll, I'll offer, I guess, an opening reflection here. Um, I think, I think often we are somewhat wrong footed at least. Um, and I, I don't, I hesitate to always lump sort of evangelicals because of course my evangelical friends, um, are sort of across the board on this. You get a, a variety of opinions, right? So I, to say that evangelicals are wrong footed would be misleading, but, um, I, I do see, opinions that seem to focus more on our own security um, than I think we're called to focus on uh, that as followers of Christ. Um, so I think that, you know, as, as followers of Christ, our first priority ought to be to show his love to those around us. Um, and that, that should extend to the political sphere. And so absolutely, I think we should be welcoming to uh, refugees and to immigrants. Having said that, I think the other, the other side to this 
is that that doesn't mean, therefore, you just sort of open the borders wide and you let anybody walk across who wants to walk across. Um, there, there can be wise ways of doing this. So one thing I say to, to you know, people who are sort of no immigrants ever from Syria mm-hmm. should come into this country and take those kind of lines, right, is I say, look, I mean, I think we should be careful. I absolutely think we should vet people and we should be be cautious because, frankly, that's not only in our interest. It's also in the interest of the refugees from Syria, right, who sure. don't want to come here and find that ISIS is, in fact, here also, right? In their they're, communities. Yeah, they're trying to get away from those people, right? These That's why they're that's why they're refugees and they're trying to get out of Syria, right? So it's in everyone's interest that we be careful how we do this. But at the same time, I don't think that we should then let fear say we're going to close our hearts to having anyone come in. And so, I mean, I have... I have had many disagreements with our current president, but I actually think his approach to this issue has been pretty even-handed and really well done. I mean, I, if I, anything, I would say encourage him to you know think about letting more people in. But I think we've been very which cautious. Which recently committed to. Yeah, which we just recently committed to, and you know, even again, even that could be expanded. But oh, I absolutely. Think, I mean, you know, the number, number of refugees in the United States is letting in is paltry compared to what Germany's dealing with. Yeah, very much so. And we, and frankly, we have more ability, in, I think, to absorb them than. Um, a lot of the European countries do, but you know. So I think I think so. So first of all, he is open to at least some, which is good. And then the other thing is, I think his administration, despite some of the criticisms of it, has been very cautious in terms of mm-hmm. its vetting process. I mean, I do not get the sense that they're sort of like rushing to let people in without carefully checking. Um, I think they've done a, a good job of you know making sure that the people that they're letting in are in fact you know people um, who are not a danger to sort of the neighborhoods they'll be joining. Right. So. Um, so yeah, I think I think we should be more open in our hearts to on, on this issue. Um, I'll just say, and I uh, my my comments actually would probably point better uh, back to Chris and Andy on this. But one of the things that I have wanted to focus on uh, when I think about this this issue too, and I, I agree with everything Andy said. I think you know caution is good, and yet also you know not closing our hearts mm-hmm. is is exactly the right uh, place to be. But I think one of the things you know we're very focused oftentimes when I read. Uh, you know, evangelical or broadly Christian uh, assessments of this, it's very focused on the refugees themselves. And right. what do we think about the refugees? And I think one of the things that we should also be doing, though, is turning uh, and looking at ourselves and mm-hmm. looking at our mm-hmm. own actions mm-hmm. and how have we contributed to the fact that there's a war in Syria that's leading to all of this death and violence. Um, and, you know, to what extent have, have United States policies, you know, of the people that we have elected actually led to this crisis mm-hmm. and how do we continue to contribute to the crisis? And I think once we kind of turn the lens back on ourselves, and again, this is where maybe Chris can, uh, you know, can, can maybe speak a little bit more uh, pertinently to, uh, to that. But, you know, once, once we sort of look at ourselves and see that, yes, you know, part of the reason that the Middle East is so unstable mm-hmm. and part of the reason that these wars are unending is partially because, you know, United States policy has constantly been to disrupt the politics of the Middle East and to constantly go and, um, you know, support various regimes and then suddenly withdraw that support and then support other regimes and then, uh, you know, sell weapons to various groups and all of these sorts of things, you know, that then lead to uh, the crisis that we're seeing and the need for, you know, for innocent people then to flee. So I think if we turn... Mm -hmm. And look at ourselves and say, what have we done? What have I done? What has, you know, the people that I have voted into office done? Um, and how has that impacted, you know, the death and destruction and the loss of home mm-hmm. for all of these people? That mm-hmm. suddenly puts a whole new light on how we should be thinking about uh, the refugees. Because then it's not, oh, who are they? It's who am I? And mm-hmm. what have I done to uh, make this make this crisis in their lives? Right. In some ways, that's the uh, a version or of the Colin Powell argument. Uh, which Colin Powell 
famously has now said he never said, but everyone says that he said, uh, which was the, the, the Pottery Barn analogy in relation to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Once you mm. invade, it's like in Pottery Barn, you break it, you buy it. Uh, <laughs> right. We broke Iraq. We bought it. We've got to be there now. We've got to do something uh, to rebuild that, and we have to take responsibility for it. I would argue that in some ways what we're dealing with now with, with Syria is actually the inverse of that. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't buy it. Um, mm-hmm. and, that was, and that's the problem. Uh, the United mm-hmm. States and under the Obama administration has made a point of not getting involved in Syria right. directly and, and being very limited in how we've invo- been involved our place, ourselves in places like Ukraine, right. uh, which is not causing refugees in the United States, but you know is, is contributing to, uh, to mm-hmm. Russian expansion of power in the Middle East as well. And I think that we've... Um, I think that the United States could take more responsibility for understanding that our decision to not get involved in Syria has led to the Bashar al-Assad regime and uh, ISIS and other forces inducing refugees that maybe if we had acted sooner, maybe if we had done something, situations like Aleppo would not have happened. And mm-hmm. and maybe that should inform our moral choices when we consider taking in refugees, too. Yeah, good point. Um. Oh, so many more questions, guys. Um, let's see if we can get a couple more in before we have to break. Uh, uh, one, uh, one of our this might be a, a shorter one, so let me ask this one. Uh, one of our students, and this is this one isn't signed. Says, "Is it are people justified not to vote? Um, can Christians make a moral justification for not voting in this election?" Well, I'm glad you asked um, because I'm going to go to an <laughs> event tonight, um, and and one of the uh, people speaking at an event tonight um, at Church of the Cross in Hopkins, Minnesota, uh, called "Believing Beyond the Ballot Box," in which we encourage people to think about political engagement beyond voting. But certainly, uh, one of the things I'm going to say at this event, as a sort of spoiler alert, right, is that um, <laughs> while believe we should go beyond voting, we should not sort of preclude, exclude voting. I think that voting is important. So I think, I mean, first of all, as Christians, we're called to submit to government, and government does ask us to register our opinions and vote. Um, so I would strongly encourage people to vote. And I think you can still vote for better people, even as as Mitchell pointed out. I mean, there's no perfect candidate. Um, there's never going to be somebody you <laughs> agree with 100% um, unless you run yourself, and even then there's probably a question whether you'll agree with yourself all the time, right? Um, as our human nature go <laughs> It's a little inconsistent sometimes, but um, I think we should absolutely vote. I would encourage people to do that. Having said that, um, I think you should also think deeply about sort of, you know, um, you know, whether you should really cast strategic votes for lesser of two evils or whether you should, you know, sometimes say, you know what, I don't want to vote Republican or Democrat on this issue. I think these two candidates are both unacceptable. Um, and it's okay to just go in and vote for certain offices and not others. If you don't know what certain positions are doing, as we've talked about on here before, or if you just say, you know, what, I do not see any candidate here that I find acceptable, um, you know, cast a protest vote or don't don't vote for that. that but vote for the down. The down to but I would encourage people to go vote for at least find the people that you can feel um, like I can legitimately cast my vote here and participate in that way. I think it's a useful uh, sort of form of civic participation. I think as Christians, um, I would encourage people to do that. I can understand why people don't and why they get disillusioned, but my encouragement would be participate. Um, one more question then. Uh, let me, uh, uh, Sterling, uh, my TA asks us a question. I think I know Sterling. Um, we, uh, we do. Uh, <laughs> Bethel's a small uh, institution, so one of the benefits of teaching here is we get to really know our students. So these guys know all these all the, all the students. <laughs> we only have one political here. science major named Sterling. So. <laughs> That's, that is true. Um, so here's the, que- here's the question he asks. Um, 
do uh, he, he asks, will evangelical Christians vote in November? How will evangelical Christians vote in November? Hmm. Trump supporters are hesitant to embrace faith is a major talking point. So will social conservatives see Trump as an ally on things like abortion and gay marriage, and et cetera? Um, and I'll, I'll add to Sterling's question. Do you uh, overall um, evangelicals are supporting uh, white evangelicals are supporting Trump at the exclusion right. of Clinton right now? Do you see evangelical support get growing for Trump between now and the election or has it leveled off or might it even wane? Uh, it, I, I would say evangelical support for Trump will probably grow at this point. Yeah. Um, you're going to see, you know, especially, uh, you know, Christianity Today uh, ran like a series of articles that were basically like three different views. You know, one person arguing that they should, you know, that that, uh, that you should cast a third party vote, one person for Hillary, one person for uh, Trump. And I think it's telling that the person who wrote the article uh, in favor of Trump was was James Dobson. So, um, so one <laughs> who, who of the, was previously uh, asserted the claim that he's uh, he's um, confirmed Trump's conversion to Christianity. Right, exactly. And and one of the things that's interesting about Dobson's argument, sort of his more, you know, originally, you know, as as, as Chris pointed out, right, his, his sort of case was that, well, Trump was a baby Christian, right, um, mm-hmm. which very much, you know, as many people have pointed out, is very inconsistent with his previous views on, uh, you know, Bill Clinton and things like that. Um, right. Never mind the fact that there is no sort of theological category of baby Christian. <laughs> right. Yeah, right, absolutely. Right, right. But one of the things, but if you look at his sort of refined or thought out, you know, now that he's sort of been subject to all this criticism, his, his new argument is simply the Supreme Court. Like that's yeah, what it right. boils down yep, to right. is basically, uh, you know, with, with Trump, his argument is that you at least have a chance of getting, um, you know, more a pro-life judge, right. That's a pro-life really judge. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's really what it boils down to. And, uh, so I, I do think that a lot of uh, evangelicals, it looks like, you know, if, if you look at the polls, you know, uh, you know, evangelicals have generally been obviously breaking pretty, pretty solidly for Trump, right. uh, at least white, white evangelicals. Um, and that will probably only grow at this point. You know, we're sort of I think I think we mentioned this last time. I can't remember who mm-hmm. said it, but, uh, you know, we're sort of seeing. Uh, the election look more and more sort of like a traditional. We're seeing uh, election. We're seeing the consolidation right. of these various um, these various groups and coalitions. You know, behind they're, um, falling, they're, they're falling in line. Yeah, they're falling in line, and so we're going to see that uh, with uh, we, we're more than likely going to see that with with evangelical Christians to once again line up with the Republican Party. Right, I, I totally agree with that. And I think I mean the main reasons why evangelicals might not want to cast a vote for Trump would be. Um, character concerns and would be the fact that he's been really inconsistent on the, the sort of the, the moral issues, moral value issue type issues like, you know, um, abortion, same-sex marriage that they care deeply about. And those, you know, look, his his position on those things has been clear for a long time. So if that hasn't already dissuade, dissuaded people from voting for him, I don't expect that he, that will start now, right? Sure. So um, I think they've, they, Mitchell's right. They're making a pragmatic choice to say, you know what, um, he may not be ideal, but we think he's better than um, the alternative, Hillary, who we really, really dislike. And we think we're more likely to get decent policies with him, even if we're not you know, sort of thrilled with everything about him. So um, I, I do think the parties are going to consolidate their support somewhat. I still kind of expect um, there to be a greater third party vote in this election just because because of the unpopularity of both these candidates. But I do think they'll get their bases behind them um, more than they have now. Right, one more question, gentlemen, before we break. And this is a hard one. It's from, it's from Jake. Uh, and Jake asks, um, how can Christians uh, support the United States government when the United States government intentionally associates with governments that persecute Christians? That is a good question. <laughs> uh, and uh, the answer is that, well, part, part, part of the answer is you're never going to have 
um, a perfect government. I mean, and in many ways, the whole nature of political power is um, is oftentimes to be involved in something that you know you're, you're always going to have uh, dirty hands. Right. Um, power is never something that you can wield. Uh, with without um, doing wrong, and so I think that's something that oftentimes makes Christians sort of very cagey about engaging in politics yeah. to begin with, because oftentimes, you know, even if you even if you're doing your best, um, you know, to only be uh, you know engaged with with uh, with good people and with right. the right people, you know, because of the fact that um, people. Uh, people sin or because you uh, you know because of the nature of politics you're often going to be involved with um, with problems and so you know one of the one of the things that I um, one of the one of the reasons I think we should be engaged in politics as Christians is to sort of try to reset the trajectories you know, mm-hmm. because oftentimes mm-hmm. what what happens is Christians will look at this and they'll say here's this major major problem you know you know being involved with with governments that persecute Christians is only one problem I mean that's one major um, failing of our of our political system. I mean, you know, one of the things that we also might think about is how has you know we've already talked about it, like race relations and things like right. that. Like there's all sorts of moral failings if we look at um, if we look at if we look at government policy, and part of that has to do with the fact that there is no single thing called you know government. Right. Um, there are simply individuals who engage in mm-hmm. you know various positions, and each of those individuals are flawed. And I don't want to mm-hmm. sort of. I know this is kind of a rambling answer, but um, but essentially one of the reasons I think I think I think it actually goes the other direction. I think when we look and we see failings in policy, that actually is an inspiration to us to be more involved right. and to mm-hmm. be um, more engaged in the process. You know, by voting and by um, you know activism and all sorts of other things that we can do um, in order to try to to uh, to to change these things to make to make a more to, to try to get a more just uh, uh, outcomes. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with that, and I would just maybe tweak what Jake said a little bit, which is to say there might be a difference between supporting government and submitting to the authority of government. And mm. so mm. I think the distinction I want to draw is we are called to submit to the authority of government. We have you know Paul telling us that in Romans thirteen, we have Peter telling us that in First Peter two, we have Christ saying this when he's asked the question about. Um, you know, sort of whether they, she should pay taxes to Caesar or not. Right. And the context is always because by, sh- by submitting to the authority of government, we show our submission to the authority of God, and therefore we, we sort of proclaim our faith, right, to the world around us. And so I think that's really important. But there might be a distinction between that and supporting what government's doing, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, Paul and Peter and Christ are going to tell us, submit to the authority of government, but not to the point where you do things that are contrary to what God has said, right? And so that doesn't mean you have to support everything government does, right? I mean, the Christians in the first century um, did not, in fact, offer sacrifices to Caesar, right? Um, even though government told them to do that. Um, so there there are lines where we, we have to disagree with our government and therefore not support it in that sense. Um, but while still trying to be submitted to its overall authority, and that's a tough line to walk. I mean, I think Jake's question is is very perceptive. It's you know it's it's difficult. And so when you think about sort of the the nuts and bolts he brings up, and I mean, our government does support some very um, some very bad players and people who directly and not just persecute Christians. Has done this for a long oh, time. Oh yeah, this is not new. This isn't like an Obama administration problem, right? This no. is a as Mitchell points out, this is a government and politics issue, right? I mean, and so, you know, I think there's there's good reasons actually for some of those uh, that support, right? I mean, for in terms of our practical politics, but Jake's right. It's kind of disturbing. Um, and so I think, you know, that's that's the balance we have to try to walk on the one hand, submitting to that authority, on the other hand, challenging our government to do better um, yep. while realizing that it is, you know, it is run by sinful people. It fails and sure. it's not going to, uh, you know, do things in all the ways we'd like. 
I'm going to uh, take an even slightly harder line argument here against okay. the CCS, which is not just, sort of, not just sort of skeptically submitting to government, but, uh, you know, um, I, I would say that there are cases in which uh, the United States choosing to be uh, um, aligned with or have interactions with governments that persecute Christians is itself a, a good choice um, because um, it's in, we, if we're thinking about the counterfactual, the, the United States decision to not associate those governments uh, may send a moral message to those governments to change their acts, but we might actually have more uh, ability to change those governments' policies right. and to advocate for yeah. Christians by associating with those governments, by having diplomatic relations with them, by having trade relations with them, possibly even by having military relations mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. uh, than we would if we didn't do those things. And so I think the United States can advocate for religious liberty around the world, whether it's Christian religious liberty or other religious liberties, um, uh, simply by being uh, the superpower and the global uh, uh, the global force that it, that it is, and I think and mm-hmm. I think that's something that we, that we ought to, as American Christians, ought to uh, support. But mm-hmm. not everyone would agree with me, and I think a lot would disagree. So hey, it's a good point, and I think there's a lot of a lot of evidence to suggest that that, that being sort of in the conversation as a friend um, gives you more influence than being sort of on the outside as an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, we have a lot more to, uh, questions to get to, but we are out of time for today. So we'll pick up a few of those questions uh, at a future date. Uh, we'll be back next Thursday uh, with our next installment of Election Shock Therapy. If you do, if you would, please uh, take a minute, um, find us on face, on uh, iTunes, give us a rating, give us a, a review so that other people can help find us a little bit easier. And as always, you can send your questions to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues, um, uh, Andy Bramson, uh, Mitchell Crum, and the absent today, Sam Mulberry, I'm Chris Moore. Go Royals. Go Royals.